This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, one of the big stories this year is will there be a soft landing, no landing, or maybe towards the end, a hard landing? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Jim Bianco from Bianco Research. Jim, we were just talking before we went on the air. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal called The Confusing Strong Economy Told in Three Stories. One is productivity's up, therefore by tech. Two, the government financed everything, sell treasuries. And then the third one, monetary policy is taking longer to bite, but eventually it will. And they come to the conclusion, based on these different trends, we either have solid growth, a government debt bomb, or a hard landing. I'd love to get your take on this. Well, I think that parts of all of that is is true. I have been operating, just to fit that into the story, under the theory or the assumption that things changed in 2020. And one of the big things that changed is our propensity to spend. We called it revenge travel in the beginning. And, you know, we just don't revenge travel once. We It becomes a way of life. Work from home, you know, deglobalization, all these things are leading more towards a stronger economy means that we're going to get more spending. Now, why is that important? Because as we get more spending, we're going to probably get more CPI inflation. That was the difference between 2010 and 2022. When we got more wealth, we didn't spend it because the previous cycle was the financial crisis. And we were all worried to you know hold on to our wealth just in case something bad happened. This cycle, something changed. It was like, I'm going to live my life. So if you mail me a check or if the stock market goes up, I'm going to spend that money. Not all of it, but more of it. And that is going to lead to that higher inflation. So when the story talks about those three things, about the stronger economy and the government spending, I think what we're struggling with is, yes, the employment statistics look better. The GDP statistics look better. And on the face of it, that should all be good. But that's all been put into the context of the last 20 years because that was all good when you didn't have inflation. But now all that good stuff might mean more inflation. And that's what's got, I think, a lot of people either tripped up about this recovery or not believing that there's a recovery because to them, it's about prices at the store and it's about their income versus prices at the store. And it's not about whether or not they have a job. So let's continue with the spending story. If they continue to spend, everybody thinks that inflation is coming down. But Jim, what if it goes the other way? Well, first of all, everybody thinks inflation is coming down because it is. But then there is, like I like to say, two things can be true at the same time. There was a transitory element to inflation in 2022 with the supply chain constraints and the reopening of the economy that got us to 9%. And that's been dissipating. Um, so that part, it's been coming down. But something else could be true at the same time. Once that transitory thing dissipates, you're still left with 3 or 4% inflation. You're not back to 2 So you have higher levels of inflation as we move forward from here. Was that due for the Fed? I think a lot. And, you know, to be cynical about it, Wall Street loves to forecast what it wants, not what's going to happen. Sometimes what it wants happens. And so they're happy about what it wants is lower interest rates. 
So it forecasted a recession a year ago. Now it's forecasting a soft landing. Um, it's forecasting scenarios or inflation's returning to 2%. We call it the last mile. Everything concludes with the same thing. Jay's got to cut rates. That's Jay Powell. Interest rates have to come down. They want lower interest rates. So if the inflation rate winds up sticking at 3 or 4%, that's going to put a problem with the lower rate story. Long-term interest rates could start trending higher. The Fed's rate cuts, you know, they could still happen, but it might be one or two. It's not going to be five, six, or seven, like Wall Street was thinking, if it's one or two. And finally, when people ask me scenarios about what can the Fed do, can they cut rates, can they end QT, quantitative tightening, can they do QE? The Fed can do anything it wants as long as we don't have inflation. Inflation meaning under 2%. If they try to move towards an easier policy with inflation still at 3%, and the market's not convinced that we've solved this inflation problem, and I don't think it is. I think it's it's happy it's moving in the right direction. It wants it to be over, but I don't think it's completely sold that it is. Then moving too easy could give you a backfire in the bond market, and that by moving too easy, you could see higher interest rates. Think about July of last year. The Fed stopped raising rates. Because they said inflation's coming down, everything seems to be doing well, the Fed's on course. And then what happened when they stopped raising rates in July? The 10-year yield went all the way up to 5%. If the Fed is not going to fight inflation and the market's not sure that inflation is a problem, then they're not going to want to buy their bonds. So this is the I still think that inflation is the story. It's what's driving the president's approval rating. It's what's driving the mood about the economy. And whether we have it or don't have it is what's going to determine what the Fed does next. You know, it's amazing because towards uh, the end of last year, we saw interest rates go down. I think the 10-year got down to 3.8. And since probably looking over the last month, Jim, we've got the 30-year bond at almost 4.4. We got the 10-year at 4.16. And we've got the two-year at almost 4.5. So it looks like rates are starting to trend up. What's your take on interest rates? Yes, I do think that rates are starting to trend up. What you've seen in the bond market, let's back up and, and contrast the bond market with the stock market real quick. In the stock market, we look at you know the VIX, the volatility index. And what we see is some of the lowest levels of volatility in the stock market in the last three or four years. And if it's not at the three or four year low, it is definitely very low over the last 20 years. But the bond market's not like that at all. The bond market's volatility numbers, it's called the move index, is very, very high. In fact, over the last year when the banking crisis hit, we've seen some of the highest volatility numbers ever in the bond market. So let's start with the premise that the bond market is suffering through a period of very high um, volatility. Now, part of what's driving that is a little bit technical, and that is the inverted yield curve, short rates higher than long rates. When you get that in the bond market, you tend to get a little bit more volatility. And so we're looking at things like the bond yield shoots up to 5%, down the 380, um, or the 10-year yield shoots up to 5%, down the 380, and then it goes back to 416 in the space of about a month. And we have to remember that this is what we call Thursday in the bond market now, because it's a very volatile period um, in the bond market. But if you step back from it and look at the last two or three years, the trend is unmistakably higher in interest rates. And I think that the trend is higher in interest rates because, one, we're not having a soft landing. 
I don't think we were ever having a soft landing. It's being very clear, especially with the payroll report and some other numbers, that we are definitely seeing very strong real growth. Inflation might be sticky. We're seeing, if you add the two together, real growth plus inflation, you get what's called nominal growth or nominal GDP. Nominal is also going up, and that's usually a primary driver of interest rates. And so interest rates are moving up in the idea that what we're seeing is much stronger growth, much higher levels of inflation. Now, normally, you'd say that's not a bad thing, that interest rates are moving up. It's a reflection of the economy doing okay, but there's a little bit of a stickiness with inflation. But I'll come back to what I said before. Wall Street desperately wants lower interest rates. And it wants lower interest rates because it's been clear in the last year that other than the MAG-7 stocks, take those out, the rest of the universe is being driven by interest rates. That the lower rates go or the perception that interest rates are going lower, stocks go higher. And when interest rates are going up, everything but the MAG-7 stocks go lower. So they want lower interest rates because they present a competition, a 5% yield on a money market fund is competition for a, uh, for a stock portfolio. Dr. Jeremy Siegel wrote Stocks for the Long Run. He put out a new edition of the book last year. And he said, the long-term prospects for the stock market is about 8% a year. And that makes a lot of sense to me, especially if you read the book and his arguments for it as well. Well, if I'm going to get 5.3 in a money market fund, I'm getting you know something approaching 70% of the stock market's returns without any market risk. And that's why a trillion and a half dollars went into money market funds. And that's what Wall Street sees, and Wall Street wants interest rates down. So they see talking about recession and soft landing, where what you're getting is the opposite. You're getting decent growth, but also sticky inflation, which is problematic, higher nominal growth, which is pushing up interest rates. This is kind of a, a little bit of a conundrum for the Fed, because as they have raised interest rates, and as you're talking about, T-bill rates are close to five and a half. They're actually pushing money into the economy. Retirees, for the first time, are actually getting you know a decent rate of return, as you just mentioned. They were getting zero for over a decade. Now they're getting a five and a half. Corporations who locked in on low levels of debt are getting five and a half on their money market deposits or their liquid cash. So it's kind of like the best of the both world. That is also feeding into the economy. Yes, it is. Actually, if you look at the data, Let's start with businesses first. There's a, the measure is what's called net interest costs. Net means your interest income minus your interest expense. And especially because the yield curve has been inverting, which means that short-term interest rates have gone from zero to 5%. Long-term interest rates have gone from half a percent to a little over four. But is that interest income has been rising faster for businesses than interest expense businesses are in a better position now because interest rates are up than they were when interest rates were at 1% or 2% a couple of years ago, talking about long-term interest rates at this point. So that is really the, the mistake that I think everybody makes, is that there's an old saw on Wall Street that the Fed will hike rates until something breaks. The, everybody's assuming we've already broken something, and so therefore the Fed's got to lower rates, but I don't think we have broken anything and it certainly isn't in business um, net interest expense. They're getting more interest income. You know, the favorite example of that is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has about $140 billion of cash at Berkshire. Well, two years ago, that was giving him zero. And today he's getting $6 billion of revenue off of sitting on that cash. 
So that's just one of many examples. Microsoft has a lot of cash too, and they're seeing their financial position rapidly improve as well because of higher interest rates. What about individuals? Well, it's a little bit more of a nuanced story with individuals. Um, interest expenses are, um, are going up and interest income is going up as well too. But on the face of it, it looks like individuals are being hurt slightly, slightly by higher rates. And why I say slightly is their interest expenses are going up a little bit faster than their interest income. But if you break that down and you look at who owns the assets and who has the liabilities in the economy, the top 50% of income in the United States has 94% of all the assets. The top 10% has about 40% of the assets. So the rich, the top 50%, if we use that as a definition of rich, they own all the assets. They own fixed income assets. They're getting interest income. They're seeing new highs in the stock market. They're seeing their Zillow and Redfin estimates and their house go up. They're doing much better. They're benefiting from higher interest rates. The poor, the bottom 50%, they own over half the debt in the country personal debt, mortgage debt, credit card debt. That's where all the debt is. That's where all the delinquencies are coming from. That's where all the problems are coming from. So as interest rates go up, they're hurt by higher interest rates. Now, two things. One, lowering those interest rates because the poor are being hurt is not going to fix their problem if you're doing it in the face of inflation. You need to get inflation down because that's what's really bothering the bottom half of the country, bottom half of the country largely lives paycheck to paycheck. And if their prices at the store are rising faster than their paycheck, they're losing ground. And that's what's showing up in like the president's approval rating being some uh, being uh, depressed because each poor person and each billionaire counts as one vote. But from an economy standpoint, 85 percent of the spending in the economy is from the top 50 percent. So if the wealthy defined as the top 50 percent income are getting more interest income, are seeing higher stock prices, and there's a propensity to spend, they're spending that money. That's why we're seeing consumption up. That's why we're seeing the economy strong. But a byproduct of that spending is sticky inflation. And that's what's got everybody up in arms about sticky inflation, especially the bottom half. So while on approval ratings, it might be one person, one vote, when it comes to the economy, it might be you know, an, a one percenter typically spends 11 to 12 times more money spending wise than a bottom 50 percenter. So their vote matters a lot more for the economy because they spend more money than the bottom 50 percent. And that's why you can both have the economy moving up and interest rates helping the, the wealthy, hurting the poor, and both see the impact of that. And it, again, I'll come back to my theme here all comes back to inflation and it all comes back to whether inflation is going down. And if we have a higher propensity to spend, that's going to keep it sticky at around three or 4%, which is where I think it's going to stay because that's essentially where we are now. And it's going to be a lot of problems for the economy because of inflation or prices, not because of flagging growth. It's amazing. You just told a story. I have a client who has a large corporation and we manage their cash, which is a little over 30 million. And because of T-bills and because of what we're getting in short-term bonds, they had one of the best years ever. The business was doing well and what we were producing in cash really, it was kind of like the icing on the cake. Yeah. You're probably underpaid too. You should uh, raise your fee for them for all that brilliant advice you gave them. <laughs> <laughs>
I want to move on to a, a, another area, and this relates to inflation, and that's in housing. Jim, I live in California, and you're talking about just a, a run-of-the-mill home, 2,000, 2,500 square feet, 1.9 million, a track home that was maybe 250,000 several decades ago is now close to 2 million. And so I think the journal had a story that maybe 25% or 30% of millennials are living at home. It goes back to your inflation story, just as the inflation is hurting the poor in the middle class because purchasing power, it's also hurting the real estate market because how do you buy a house? Even if rates were to come down, how are you going to buy a house for $2 million? Uh, the answer is you're not. <laughs> That's why they live at home, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, the housing market is kind of an interesting um, beast because uh, we assume that higher mortgage rates and, you know, the average mortgage rate, according to bank rate, is like 7.1% 30-year fixed in the United States right now, up from under 4% about two years ago, is is hurt the housing market. And then we point to numbers like the sales of homes is down about a third from where it was two years ago. So less homes are turning over. One of the reasons that less homes are turning over is if you look at the price of homes, what you just described, they are not coming down in price. People are listing their home and they're putting up, let's, let's be generous, they're putting a full valuation on their home. And their broker will come to them and say, mortgage rates have gone up. So that means that the monthly cost to buy your home has gone up. You should come down a little bit on your price to make your house a little bit more attractive. And it seems like the answer we're getting from people is, no, I'm not coming down on my price. I want my number. And maybe they want their number because they know that they have a 3.5% mortgage. And when they have to go buy another home to live in, they're going to have to get a 7% mortgage. So they need that extra money for that mortgage. Or maybe... It's that they're not stressed and they're not desperate to sell. I will sell if I get my number, but otherwise I'm just fine um, where I'm at right now. And so what we're seeing is an interesting market that we're talking about mortgages are higher mortgage prices are hurting. Well, that should show up in lower prices. And most of the data from Zillow and Redfin, and I like their data because they put it on a per square foot basis, um, is not coming down. In fact, we're, we're, you know, in terms of list prices, we're making new all-time highs in terms of the uh, prices that people are listing on their house. Finally, a quick word about housing. You're in California. You may like this. So 62% of the, of the country lives in the South or the West. That means 38% live in the Northeast and the Midwest. But of the 62% that live in the South and the West, 95% of all new homes and 80% of all existing homes trade in the South and the West. It's only 5% of new homes and something like 25 or 30% of existing homes trade in the Northeast or the uh, Midwest. So part of what we're also seeing too is this cultural shift. People that live in the Midwest, I'm in Chicago, people who live in the Midwest, they, we don't move. We don't move. You, you buy one home and then you get kids, you buy a second home and you're done and you live there until you're ready to sell your home and move to Arizona, Florida, or Texas is where, is where your next home um, tends to be. And so what we're also seeing is there's a big divide geographically. The Phoenix real estate market actually trades more homes on a monthly basis than the New York City real estate market, 
even though the Phoenix real estate market's like one eighth the size of the New York City real estate market. It's because everybody's shifting south and everybody's shifting west in the homes. So I'm not surprised you told me that your your track home in California is so much. You're not going to get that price in Cleveland. And it's more in maybe it's the weather tax that you've got because you've got nicer weather than you would in Cleveland. But um, ultimately, that is the migration that people are look uh, move towards. I think four states, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and California, account for over half of all homes that are sold in the country. The other 46 states are hmm. the other half of the homes. Let's bring this back down to the stock market. So getting back the scenario right now, we growth is still looking good. We're adding jobs. But, you know, you take a look at just by virtue of indexing, we've gone, Jim, Magnificent 7, Mag 6, Fab 4, and now we're down to Dynamic Dual. I'm just looking at Microsoft, 37 times earnings, NVIDIA, 90 times earnings, and Amazon, 58 times earnings. It almost reminds me back in the day with uh, back in the tech bubble, you had Companies like Cisco had $20 billion in sales, but they were valued at $600 billion. So as long as money keeps going into the stock market, going into an S&P index fund, 30 cents of that dollar is going to go into these companies. That's correct. And I think what you said is very telling, too, because as we look at the way that investing is going on right now, indexation is overwhelmingly the most popular way to invest, especially in equities, because historically, when we look at um, S&P puts out a, a report called the SPIVA report, which is S&P index versus active SPIVA. And they look at active managers performance versus the indexes. And something like 90% of active managers cannot outperform the S&P. Now, the reason is very straightforward. And that is, is that the uh, S&P has seven stocks, as you pointed out. Actually, I was looking at it a little bit earlier today. It's 31% now of the, S of the overall S&P. Those stocks, as you said, with NVIDIA and Microsoft and the rest, are by every understood metric, very overvalued. So as an active manager, your reflex would be to not have a full or overweighting in those overvalued stocks. Well, if you don't, you have no chance to beat the S&P. And that's why we're seeing that the majority of managers cannot beat the S&P. And the majority of investors understand this. And so they think a diversified portfolio is QQQ, which is the NASDAQ 100, and SPY, which is the S&P 500. Which one do I go with and what mix do I go with? And therefore, I'm done as far as my investments go. And that's because the index will have 31% to use the S&P. It will always have 31% of it if it in the MAG-7 stocks. And if they continue to outperform and it goes to 32 or 33%, they will never change that weighting. And as long as active managers that are trying to use value considerations um, and everything else are not fully betting on those seven stocks, they can't outperform. So all the money's getting funneled into these indexes and these indexes just jam these stocks higher and these indexes are what seems to be driving all of the activity and that gets back to my earlier comment what's the one thing that upsets the indexation in the market competition 
where does that competition come from? Interest rates. If the interest rate market keeps going, if interest rates keep going up and it keeps providing an alternative, we used to use the word Tina when interest rates were at zero. Now there is an alternative. Well, you know, maybe it's, you know, 60 or 70% of the stock market gains. Um, are, I could get in interest rates. Okay. Well, I'm not going to keep 100% of my money in, in interest rates, but I might keep 60 or 70% of my money in interest rates, which means I don't have a full dollar to invest in the stock market. I'm down to about 30 cents to invest in the stock market. So that could be the thing that could upset it. Now, what's happened since early November? Interest rates have fallen. And everybody's heard that the Federal Reserve wants to cut rates multiple times. Wall Street is very, very bullish on, on the bond market, thinking that bond prices will go up or interest rates will go down. And the stock market's responding by the competition is going to be less. Interest rates are going to go down. And everybody's piling into these indexes. Well, if interest rates go up, that could be the thing that could really upset that dynamic. You know, I'm just looking at this in... As we were talking about the problems for stocks, I think one people forget, Jim, is the reverse of indexing. So if you look at 2022, I think the NASDAQ was down a third, and then you had the S&P down about 22%. In that year, these MAG-7 stocks got killed. Some of them were down 50 and 60%. So I think investors forget what can happen to them on the downside. I mean, it's wonderful to see the, the indexes go up as this money pours in and drives these stocks higher, but it can happen on the reverse side, on the downside. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're fully invested. And that's what, and that's great when the market goes up, you get every penny of the upside. But when you're fully invested, that's what an index is, is fully invested. And it doesn't change. But when the market goes down, you're going to get every penny of every loss um, on the downside as well. So that is the double-edged sword. But right now, you know, the old saying on Wall Street is, you know, the two emotions that drive investing are greed and fear. Right now, we're in the greed, hope phase in the market, and the fear phase isn't there as much. Uh, so, you know, onward and upward. And like I said, a diversified portfolio is QQQ and SPY, it seems like. And the the flows definitely bear that out, too. The flows into SPY is the S&P 500 iShares S&P 500 is the largest ETF in the world. It's got over half a trillion dollars in it, I think now. And the flows in the second half of 2023 were tremendous. It was far and away the number one inflow instrument that we saw to get of the like the 14,000 ETFs. It was not only number one, it was number one by a mile in terms of where, where people were putting their money. You know, the thing that really strikes me, and we've been talking about this, I know what we're doing. We've got treasuries, we've got short-term corporate bonds, and we've got some dividend stocks, believe it or not. Jim paying 5 and 6%, they're being ignored by the market. So as you mentioned, if I can get 60 to 70% of the return of the stock market longer term without any risk, seems to me a clear-cut case. Yeah, that might be the new 60-40 portfolio or some version of that, you know, that um, you're getting most of the stock market without nearly as much risk. And the the argument is there is a there is a thing called a cycle. And the cycle means the market goes up and the market corrects. And of course, when the market's going up, you know, you can never own enough NVIDIA. You can never own enough, um, you know, Microsoft. And you've got to really be pressing the bet as hard as you can. And that's true. But 
you know, when the market turns and goes down, that all works against you. So you get most of the upside in the market by the description that you had with your corporate bonds and um, with your dividend stocks. And then you do not participate in the downside on the next cycle. And then over the whole cycle, that can be a winning strategy. It's just hard to tell people that when you're knocking on the door of uh, 5,000 on the S&P and everybody's all bullish on the market right now. That's an easier story to tell once you kind of come off the boil. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, you do a lot of great research and in-depth work in what you do at Bianco Research. How can our listeners find out more about that? So two ways. I have a new way for you, Jim, to tell people how to find out about me. So the old way is BiancoResearch.com is my website. I'm active on social media, Jim Bianco at LinkedIn, Bianco Research on uh, Twitter, and Bianco Research on YouTube. So you can follow me on all of those. But the new way is I started an ETF. I started an ETF about two months ago. It is a fully invested fixed income ETF. So we are managing the yield in the market. So we're always long the bond market. Uh, we do it on an index level basis. We have what's called the Bianco Research Total Return Index. That is managed by our investment team that I had, where we make determinations on whether we want to be overweight or underweighted duration, which is an interest rate bet, the yield curve, corporates, mortgages, um, and the like. And Wisdom Tree, our partner, has an ETF, WTBN, Wisdom Tree Bianco, Nancy is the symbol, and it tracks our index. Our index is available on Bloomberg, and we have a website that explains all of this. Instead of Bianco Research, which is our research site, it's BiancoAdvisors.com that explains um, our index and the approach that we are taking to indexes. Real quick, I mentioned earlier that 90 to 95% of active managing strategies, similar to what we're doing, can't beat in the S&P. Fixed income, it's more like 50% can't beat the index. The, the index kind of falls in the middle. Now, why does the index fall in the middle? Because as I mentioned, in equities, if you don't own your all-stars, the mag sevens, you underperform. But in fixed income, your biggest weightings are your problem children, your over-levered companies or your countries that have borrowed too much money. And if you can recognize those problems, and you can in fixed income and sidestep that, you can outperform an index. So that's why we're looking at a fully uh, invested fixed income uh, approach. There is a yield again in the bond market as well, too. And we're presenting ourselves as an alternative to a bond index. So thanks for letting me point that out. And that symbol again? WTBN, Wisdom Tree Bianco, Nancy. All right. Well, listen, Jim, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you and much success with your new launch. Thank you very much. Well, that concludes my interview with Jim Bianco. As Jim and I discussed, the market isn't expecting the return of inflation, much less higher interest rates, which may be why the market leadership is narrowed to just a few stocks. As always, to learn more about what we're doing and how we can assist you, give us a call at 888-486-3939 or go to our website, financialsensewealth.com. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.